I'm going to recap a little bit what we where we're at. I was considering, I'm still like debating, <laughs> going back a little bit. There's a idea at the end of the last chapter, which I think is very powerful. But I'm thinking right now maybe to revisit that once we conclude, because I want to stay on topic over here. So I want to keep the flow going. So we'll move on to chapter three, because I feel like that would be a little bit of a, maybe derail us a little bit in our conversation. So for the meantime, at least, we'll stay focused and continue on the with the chapter. So let me give a quick recap um, where we're at so we know where we're going, etc. So the last two chapters, the... Alter Rebbe was expounding on a pretty profound idea, and he did so first in chapter one by pretty much stating as a fact, and in chapter two, he tried giving the rationale behind it. And that is, as Jews, we believe in God created the world. And when you open the Torah, how did God create the world? It says God created the world by the ten utterances. He said, this should happen, and that happened. There should be light, there was light. There should be vegetation, there was vegetation, and so on and so forth. So God said, and it came to be, right? And by bringing different references from different scripture, the Alter Rebbe made the statement that the creation of the world and the utterances, the words that enable creation were not just uttered once and created. On the contrary, those words constantly keep, are constantly present and constantly acting to keep every element of creation in existence. To the extent if those words would cease to be proactive and they would cease to, sort of say, be talking or be acting, sort of, if God would cease to constantly be saying, sort of say those words, life as we know it would cease to exist because existence is dependent on the energy of creation. And the second that energy of creation ceases to constantly be active, creation will cease to exist. After stating that as kind of a matter of fact in chapter one, in chapter two, the Alter Rebbe gives some logic to that. And the logic that the Alter Rebbe brings is as follows. When we look back at most things which are made, we see for us, when we make something, we can assume that once we made it, it will exist pretty much because the material, the raw materials for whatever we made pre-existed whatever we make. So therefore, once we make something, it can exist on its own because the essence of what we use to create that already existed before we created that item. Whether it's a computer or a table or a pottery, we're reallocating resources that were prior to the new use of whatever we create. When it comes, though, to creation, God created the only thing that existed was God. And then God created the world all the world's existence all of the materialism of this world was created without any prior resources of such before and therefore it has no real independent existence without god making it be and we gave a example where we see this 
for example, in miracles, when God bends nature, or even when we bend nature, if we force something natural to go against its natural course, we can't, in order for that to happen, we have to constantly force that action in order for that to be consistent. For example, when we pick up something from the floor, if we want that to stay off the floor, we have to keep on holding it. The second we let go, gravity is going to bring it straight back down. Or where we see in miracles, when God split the sea and the water stood, normally water flows, the God's wind had to constantly blow in order for the waters to stay standing. The second God would cease to keep the, as it said, describes in the verse, the wind blowing, the second the wind would stop keeping the waters from rising or staying still, the water would go back to its natural cause. So as we see ourselves in our lives, whenever we're forcing something which is not innately that way, we have to constantly have that force to push it to do what we want. So in creation, where the entire creation is a novelty from God or from a pre-existed creation, the second the force that allows creation to exist ceases, then creation itself ceases to exist. Where are we getting with all this? What's the goal of, why? Do, what's the agenda over here? So the agenda is going to be clarified a little bit more in chapter three. And the agenda and what this information or the case that the author made about existence being dependent on the godly life force that keeps it in existence will help us now answer a question and at the end of this chapter, re-answer a new question. And that's something which we preempted before we started chapter one. And that it is the goal of this chapter is to understand the oneness of God's existence and make sense of that with our with existence as we see it. The famous Jewish prayer that he, the Alter Rebbe quoted at the beginning of chapter one is the Shema Yisrael prayer. Here, O God, the Lord is uh, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Right now, when we say, what does it mean when we say that the Lord is one? So. In Jewish law, there's an interesting meditation that you're supposed to have when you say that Lord is one. In Hebrew, it's Hashem Echad. So the word Echad has three Hebrew letters, Aleph, Chet, and Dalet. Okay? Aleph is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. If anyone's familiar, in Hebrew, we don't really have numbers in, in biblical Hebrew. In Lieu of numbers, we use letters, kind of like Roman numerals, where you're using letters as numbers. In Hebrew, we also use letters and numbers. So Aleph, the first letter is one, Beth is two, until you get to Yud, which is ten. And then it starts going by up by ten. So if you want to write 21, you write Chaf, which is 20, and Aleph, which is one, and so on and so forth. That's how it works. So if we take now the letters of the word Echad, this is the meditation you're supposed to have. Aleph is one. So reference of God's oneness is that there is only one. Chet is in the is number eight, which goes on the seven heavens, the seven spheres, and the earth. And Dalit is the is four, which means in all directions. The concept that God is one is that God existence permeates 
and exist everywhere and anywhere. God's existence is not absent from any place. That is the meditation we're supposed to have, and this is brought down in Jewish law, what it means when we, said that, when we say that God is one. God's existence is everywhere and is everything. So over here, what we're a challenge, which we're trying to intellectually comprehend, is how is it that God can God is one, and God is not um God does not share a space with us ever since creation happened. We would think once the world is created, now God is not the only one around. Now God shares the shares the world, shares existence with us. And yet in Jewish terminology, we continue to stress countless times in multiple verses and multiple prophecies the fact that God's oneness is still the ultimate oneness and there is no other existence behind him. And yet we're all here, the billions of people on the world are waving our hands and saying, hey, look at us. What about our existence? Did we just disappear? God, cre And not only that, God is our creator. So how does God create us and yet continue to exist as he did after, before creation, as if we never existed? And at the same time, we'll look through Torah scripture, and Torah scripture will tell us how God created us, and God cares for us, and God is present, and he's knowledgeable. And there's so how does how do we exist and not exist in the same time? Sort of say. How does God's existence remain untainted by creation? And yet we actually do exist. So based off the premise that we stated before, that our existence is totally 100 percent dependent on God creating us and the godly energy that creates us and that we are not a fully independent existence that can operate and exist on our own like when we create something within our reality in chapter three we're going to make the case how to god our existence does not affect his existence in any way shape or form our existence does not mean that there's something else that exists beyond them that perception is only a perception that we have. Now we're going to finish off after we make our case in chapter three. I'll give a little heads up. We're going to ask how is it possible that we can have a perception based of based of what we'll say in a second that we can feel as if God doesn't exist or we exist independently from God. But in chapter three, based off information we have before, he's going to make the case that God, by creating the world. And us feeling like we exist is only does for God does not affect him at all. And for him, he still see he's just as he's the same only existence before creation and after creation. All right. Sounds like a good challenge to be able to make this point right now. So that's what we're going to try to do in chapter three. So he begins as follows. So, so following these introductory words of truths in chapter one and two, anyone who ponders the matter will thoroughly understand that each creation and entity is in fact literally considered absolute nothingness in relation to the creative force and breath of his utterance within the creation that perpetually brings into existence and brings it forth from utter nothingness into being. Based off what we said before, that what is the predominant element of creation? What allows existence to exist is the godly force that creates it. Why? Based on what we said in chapter two, because we have to remember existence is not a reallocation of resources. It's a creation from nothing to something. So therefore, we'll be able to understand that existence is really 
now there is no real independent existence that exists. I just want to stop. I, I hope this won't detract. But there's terms of yesh and ayin is is used many times within Judy within Hasidic terminology. In translation, yesh means existence, and ayin means nothingness. And a lot of times in terminology, we'll even call behave mannerisms. That's a yesh, a create existence mannerism. Or we want someone to be an ayin. We encourage people to be nothing. What does it mean when we say nothing or existence? So this is a terminology. I want to just put it out there and we'll see as we go develop this chapter how this makes sense. But the idea of yesh or ayin, and this is also in Judaism, will be the determination between a godly act or a ungodly act. We'll just put it that way, right? <laughs> um, and even times terminology of good and bad will be used within Hasidus is an act which is either selfish or, or humble and selfless. For example... When someone, I hope this is a good example, but just this last couple of weeks, the lottery, the Mega Million kept on, you know, raking it up there. And just yesterday, someone in Florida got the winning ticket, right? So now this person went from, I don't know what they were before, possibly a middle income person, or maybe even someone which, you know, barely was scraping it to survive, overnight became a millionaire. Now, the mindset that could have is either now, hey, I'm a millionaire, I could do whatever the heck I want, or, and very likely, if they become self-inflated and egotistical in the wealth that they just acquired, statistics have it that that money will probably bring them into greater debt than they were before they won the lottery, if they'll use it recklessly, or there's a humble approach, realizing, hey, how fortunate am I? That of all the millions of people that, you know, bought lottery tickets, I got this money. How can I make sure that I use this in a meaningful way, right? And in every element in life, at all points of life, we can either be haughty and egotistical, assume that we are the sole existence and I am me, me, it's all about me. Or we can have a little humility in the moment and realize that, Whatever I'm charged with is something beyond me as well. So in our existence as well, we can have an existence of a yesh, of existence, where I feel my existence, and the only thing that exists is my perspective, and therefore I live a life which is all about me. That's yesh. Or whereas I in nothing doesn't mean that you don't exist. It means that you don't, you realize that what I have, my existence doesn't come inherently from me. It comes from the fact that God allows me to live. God grants me life and so on and so forth. So therefore my approach to everything is a sense of humility, responsibility, and so on and so forth. So the term I and doesn't mean nothing. On the contrary, someone who lives a humble life, I would say has everything. They have a rich life. They're usually grateful usually introspective, and so on and so forth. So when we use terms of existence and nothingness, there's sometimes a, we. Uh, this is an important thing in general, we use, when we learn a, anytime you're learning a, a study or a text, it's important to understand the language or the application of how certain language is. So as we'll talk about our existence, at no point are we saying within Judaism or within Hasidus that we don't actually exist. 
The question is, how do we look at our existence? Do we look at our existence as a standalone existence where everything and ev- all and everything surrounds around me? And all I should care about is how I feel and how I exist. Or should I realize that I'm just a, I am blessed to be a, I am blessed to be part of God's reality. And let me tune in to that reality. So I should be a part of that as well. So let's move on. So we made a statement that based on what we said before, that our exist, based off what we said before, if one contemplates on the matter, they'll realize that their entire existence is totally dependent on the godly life force that gives us in creation. So let's continue over there. Now, what, what if you, however, if you talk to anybody, like I said before, when you initially will call out and see that, hey, what, you know, the only thing that exists is God. We're only expressions of, and, and our existence is God. Everyone's going to say, what are you talking about? I woke up in the morning. I made that decision to wake up. I ate food today. I did this. It's all me. I'm the one that's making myself exist because we feel our own existence. You don't feel how God is creating us. So how is that possible? So he asked here that each creation appears to to us as a substantial reality and an, an inherent existence of his own is because we do not perceive and see with our corporal eyes the creative force of God and the breath of his utterance within creation. It's only because... We don't have a clear perspective of the truth. If we we don't see the godly force in action when we look at something. However, if ability would be granted to the eye to see and perceive the life force and spirit coursing through each creation, which emanates from God's mouth and breath of his utterance, the entity's physical form and its material substance would not be visible to our eyes whatsoever. The fact that we look around the world and we see things that exist is a trick of our eyes. And as I mentioned, I think in the past, it's a lot of studies have told us our eyes play tricks on us all the time. And that's why we could go to a uh, magic show and be amazed at at the actions that are doing, which are all sleight of hand and illusions that are playing on the, the tricks that our eyes do all the time when we look around. Our eyes choose what to see. So God created us in a way that our vision should be incapable of comprehending or seeing the godly life force in action. Why is that? Because God wants us to feel like we exist. God wants us to have free choice. God wants us to be making our own decisions. If we would be, uh, if we would be able to see beyond the physical realm, and let's put it this way: if you every time you look at your hands, you're comfortable picking up something and eating it. If you at all the times would have microscope, uh, microscopic vision or like Superman, be able to see, you know, right through your hands, you'll see all types of germs and bugs and stuff, many, you know, things on your hands moving. And you'll kind of probably be freaked out and be constantly at, your ha- at the sink washing your hands. Fair to say? <laughs> so in this realm, in this way as well, if God wants us to be able to exist in a physical realm, we cannot see how God is actively keeping us going. Because if we would see that, we we would we would be we would cease to see how we're physical beings. We'll cease to feel the 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 independency which we need to have to be able to make our own choices. As he says, because it is literally every existence is literally subsumed in the life force and spirit contained within it, 
since without the spirit, it will literally be absolute nothingness as it were before the sixth days of creation. Because like we said before, the moment the energy ceases to exist, we cease to exist. I think a great parable for this. Okay, before he brings its own parable, I want to bring another parable for this, which I thought is a little timely and perhaps could understand this concept. Um, probably anytime you open up a new site, there's going to be at least one article about AI. Right? AI is the talk of the town right now. And uh, the ramifications of it, we're still slowly understanding. Now, AI at its source is a bunch of coding. AI is only capable of doing what the coding says, whatever the coding is typed in. Yet, we're almost like the sci-fi movies. We're at a point which we're trying, we're assuming that AI can create its own consciousness, right? Now, let's say, let's, let's, I, I don't understand the topic. Congress is busy figuring it out, and like they figure out all problems, they'll probably figure it out by the time um, AI is taken over control of Congress. But the the even let's say AI is able to acquire consciousness. You know, it's like funny when you see like an action shot where there's a bunch of robots running and they're about to destroy everything, and all of a sudden you just zap the power out of the robots, and boom, they don't exist anymore. Right. So even if AI is able to attain consciousness. They'll only be able to do so as long as we give technology a venue or a platform to exist. If we pull the plug on computers or or the or the code that's in, you know funneling AI, AI will cease to exist. So in the same way over here, our existence is solely dependent on God. Even if we have full consciousness and we're independent thinkers. This whole reality that we are in is still dependent even when we're making our own decisions, even when we're changing the world and making all these things, that's still only possible as long as God continues to keep us in existence. As long as that energy of creation continues to keep us funneled. So is our existence a real existence or is it dependent on our source code as long as our source code is feeding us? We're always dependent on our source code. So we're not really independent individuals and that's why within our reality ai can never really take the place of a human because a human will always have the control of allowing ai to exist or not so in that same way we are god sort of say ai code god wrote a very complex ai code in which he has beings which fear are able to make conscious decisions and act independently but at the, all points of time, we're always still part of the code that God created. We never became separate from that code. We're always connected to that code. And that's why if we would realize that we're just coding, as he says over here, we would realize that we're just a code. We're, we're, we're actually subsumed. We're just an extension of God's life force. We're not our own existence. Because it is literally, creation is literally subsumed in the life force and spirit contained within it. Since without that spirit, it would literally be absolute nothingness as it was before six days of creation. So at no point did we become a separate, independent existence beyond God. And the spirit that flows upon it from that which emanates from God's mouth and the breath of his utterance is the sole force that perpetually brings it forth from absolute nothingness to existence and sustains it. Again, reiterating the fact that our existence is the godly energy within um, with that sustains us and we're not, not the materials. And therefore, consequently, there is truly nothing besides him. So for the writer, for the code writer, and for the code, 
AI is always a reaction to its code. It's not a separate force. So when God looks at creation, at no point in time does he see something which is which is you know running you know running uh running loose on its own and its own existence. He's always seeing that this is an expression of myself. And this is the analogy that the uh the analogy that Hasidus uses for this is the analogy, I'll, I'll explain it outside and then we'll read it inside, is the analogy of the light of the sun and the sun. And there's many reasons why we use this analogy. And this is, I, I'll, I'll reference this a little bit too, um, where, like I mentioned, I may have wanted to go back to the end of chapter two to elaborate on it, but I didn't want to get too off topic. But I'll, I'll mention that a little bit. This goes into the fact that when we use creation, God uses the terminology all the time of words, speech. Why does God use speech? Why doesn't it say God made the world? Why does it say God spoke and it came to be? Action, if it said God made the world, action is something which takes, one has to stop in order to do. Speaking, person has the ability to speak and speak and speak, and it feels like an inconsequential action as opposed to making something, right? So for God, creation is not something which God had to, you know, stop what he was doing in order to make the world. For God, sort of say, it's like us speaking is a, it's just a direct result of whatever God wants there. It's not a, God didn't have to, you know, sort of say, stop what he was doing and to, for creation to happen. So in the same way, we like using a lot of times creation or, or the way God interacts, we'll use also light. Why? Because light is an action which the, the ray of light comes about automatically. If there's a source of light, automatically you'll have light all around. You don't, there isn't a step two that has to happen. Once a light, a flame is lit, there's going to be light around that, that flame. When you light a light bulb, there's going to be light around that light bulb. So because there is such a smooth automatic reaction, which doesn't take any effort on behalf of the source of the light to create the, the light around it. It's we like using that as a parable for the way creation or the way God interacts with us, because it's kind of a effortless automatic action when God wants to do so. And as we'll go through the parable, there's also other elements which help us understand the relationship of creation. But um, today we're slowly realizing the power of the, ray of the sun i mean every day we wake up every morning we have what we call a morning because we get the sunlight shines down on us um today we're also harnessing solar power and so on and so forth so the amount of time that we the the, the there's so much time spent appreciating the the sun's energy now let me ask you does the sun ever come into this world did we ever get a visit from the sun in this earth? No. So what are we studying? We're studying just the ray, the effects of the sun's existence. So for many people, we're sitting and studying the ray of the sun or the effects of the sun. And we could spend a lifetime when all the ray of the sun is, is a direct result of the sun itself. Now, where is the sun's? ray probably at the brightest or the most powerful right near the sun itself the closer you get to the sun i would assume the light or the energy and the solar power of the sun is greater the closer you get to the sun right 
But yet, if you look at the sun, this is a this is a very comp this is a debatable question. When you look at the sun, are you seeing the ray of the sun or are you seeing the sun itself? So the closer you get to the source, the harder it is to differentiate between the source of light and the ray of the light that's coming off of it. Okay, so where the sun is, the where the ray is the strongest, it's the least felt. I'll, let me give you another parable, um, which it, which could be better explained. And the point that we're trying to bring out over here is something can exist independently, and but yet at the same time, because it's dependent on its source, it doesn't really exist at, at, from the source perspective. Let's take, for example, the moon. I think this is a great parable. The moon at night, we look up, and if you're traveling in the desert, I mean, today with all of the streetlights and so on, and the um, and 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 so on, that we have around us, it's harder. We did not necessarily feel the moonlight as much. But back in the day, people would walk in the moonlight when the world was a little, the ear was a little more clear. So if you go out in the desert, you can see, you can feel the light of the moon. Now, does the moon have any light of its own, or is it just? A ray of the sun that's projecting off the moon. It's projecting the light of the sun. Now, especially today, where days like today, where the, the night comes in very late, many times you can see the moon during the daytime. Now, let me ask you, is there any light when you see the moon? Probably the fact that you see the moon is for the fact that the light of the moon is the light of the sun is still projecting off the moon. But can you see how the moon is glowing during the day? No. Why? Because there's so much light out, the light that the moon is giving becomes insignificant. The ray of light which is shining, which is also shining on the moon, is felt on its own. So when we feel the sun itself, the light of the moon becomes insignificant because the moon doesn't have any light of its own. So in this same way, our existence is like the ray of the sun. And just like just like creation itself, is the ray of the sun itself independent existence? Is the light of the moon itself independent existence? No, it's dependent as long as the sun exists, we'll have light down here on Earth. If you take away the source, you don't have solar power, right? The solar power we have is solely dependent as long as the sun is shining. So our existence is also only present as long as the source, the godly energy, is keeping us in existence. As a result, too, do, does the sun feel at any time that the ray that is shining is not a result of him or not part of his existence? Absolutely not. We can sit and from our perspective, when we're miles away from the sun, we can sit and discuss, you know, the energy that we get from the, you know, workout and, and appreciate the, uh, the ray of the sun. But to the sun itself, it's just everything is a, it's a direct result of him. It's not an independent force. So in existence as well, because we are dependent on God and God is our source, and no point does God see us or feel us as a separate entity that's working on its own. I'll give one more parable. Hopefully this helps a little bit. Um, but we're it's all about perspective, right? And perspective can allow two truths to be true at the same time. For many years, wars were only fought during the daytime. Why? Because at night, it's dark. You can't see, really. 
So you're shooting in the dark. You could be shooting your neighbor or you're, you don't know who, who's going on. Came, I, I'm not sure if it was the U.S. Army the first one to do it, became night vision. And all of a sudden, we're able to carry out tasks at night as well. So without the goggles, if you're in the dark and it's pitch black, you look around, you can't see anything. It's all darkness. Now, all of a sudden, you put on the goggles and now all of a sudden you see there's life you can see there's a life there's a person there's a tree so on and so forth whatever the goggles allow you to see now is it currently dark is it currently dark outside that you re really can't see that other person yes but the goggles allow you to see so in the same way our existence is really only we're all apart and we're privy to god that's the only thing that really exists but God created a reality, which he created, sort of say, night vision goggles, that within this reality of God, we should be able to see, sort of say, a reality that exists on its own. But does that reality really exist on its own? Only as long as we're wearing those goggles. So here we go. Vamushal is that analogy that illustrates this concept. Is the light of the sun which illuminates the earth and its inhabitants in the form of a ray of light radiating from the body of the sun, visible to all shining upon the earth and the world's expanse. Now, it's obvious that the ray of light is also present in the actual body and material of the sun in the sky, for it can radiate and shine to such a vast distance, all the more so it's capable of illuminating in its actual place from which it or originates. So if there's a ray of light down here on earth, which is miles away from the sun, there's for sure a ray of light by the sun itself. However, there in its actual place from which it originates, this ray of light is literally considered absolute nothingness because it's literally subsumed in the body of the sun, which is the origin of this ray of light. And this ray of light is nothing more than illuminating sh than illumination shining from the actual body of the sun. So once you're next to the sun, you because you're right near the source, the existence of the ray becomes insignificant because you're in by the source. So you don't feel any more a need to focus on the ray. Yet here in the world's expanse under all the heavens and on the earth where the body, the sun, is not present, this ray of light is perceived as an entity onto itself. Not only is it an entity onto itself, like I said before, it becomes a whole source of life. People are living entirely off solar power, visible to all, and can truly be referred to here as an entity. However, at its source, however, in the body of the sun, it cannot be referred to as an entity onto itself. Rather, it's considered absolute nothingness, for in fact, there is literally is nothing, since there is, since there only its source, the radiant body of the sun alone, shines light in nothing else. And literally, the same way, perfectly corresponding to the analogy, all created entities exist in relation to the divine flow that emanates from the breath of his utterance, which flows upon them and brings them into existence. This flow is their source. While they themselves are merely as ray of lights emanating from the flow of God's spirit, which flows into them and is enclosed within them, bringing them forth from nothingness into existence. Therefore, especially from God's perspective, they are subsumed in their sources of ray of sunlight is subsumes in its source of the sun and is literally considered absolute nothingness in relation to the sun. And it cannot be referred to as an entity onto itself at all when with its source. Only when it is under the heavens where its source is not present, it's considered entity of substance. So to all creation can be referred to as entities onto themselves only when viewed with our corporal eyes as we do not see or perceive whatsoever the source, 
which is God's spirit that gives them existence. Therefore, our eyes perceive the physicality of creation and the material substance as real entities, just as the light of the sun appears to be a real entity when it is not with its source. One of the big reasons why we use the parable of the sun is like I mentioned before, the sun's ray, even when it's down here in this world, is really only an extension of the sun itself. We're feeling the effects of the sun. We're not feel the ray of the sun is not an independent entity that works on its own. It's an expression of the sun. However, because it's distant from the sun, we can study it as its own thing. Or, for example, in an extreme case, someone who grew up in a ditch, which they don't see the sun, they only see the ray of the sun, don't know even of the sun existence, but they know of the ray of the, 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 the they know the effect of the sun's existence. They see the light. So they know the light exists. They don't know the sun exists. But when you're standing near the sun, there's no way to misunderstand, misinterpret any light existence separate from the sun's existence. It's only when you're detached from the source or you don't feel the source, which you can study the, the existence of something separate from the source. And same thing with our existence. We are solely dependent on our godly, the godly energy that creates us. The only way we feel independent is because we're not in tune or we don't perceive. We feel distant from the source. And over here, he stresses an amazing thing, which you think about it. And the analogy is very different than the reality that, we, of the, that we're talking about. In the sun's ray, when we're on earth, there is actual distance between the sun and the ray. But when it comes to us and our source, where there is no distance, God's existence is right here. The fact that I'm existent means that God is present right here. So I'm actually standing right near the source. So if we can we can perceive how the sun, the light of the sun, miles away from the sun is solely an expression and a part of the sun's effects, how much more so to God we're when you're standing near the sun, which we are at all times, we're standing right near God. God is right present, making us be right here. To God, we're not even a distant existence or a distance effect or radiant. We are always a part of God's source code and God's existence. And that's what he says over here. Yet in regard, the analogy of sunlight apparently does not perfectly correspond to that which is it is illustrating. For an analogy, the source of the sun is not present whatsoever in the world's expanse, nor on earth itself, where the light is perceived as a real entity. Whereas all creations are constantly within their divine source. Only the source is not visible to the corporal eyes. And with that, he leaves off a question which will be basically the he's going to deep dive for the the rest of the um the next uh, 10 chapters or so i think it's a little less than 10 chapters the next eight chapters um is to understand this question if so if we are always right next to the source why are they not sub why is creation not subsumed within the reality of their source so to understand to understand that there's necessary for preface which will be the following chapter so basically we started off the questioning our we started off and this is where like perspective where you go you answer one question in Judaism it leads to another question right whereas we're always asking questions so we start off with question how can god be the only existence if he created us and we answered because he never created us as independent beings we're always still an expression of god just like light that emanates from a from the sun or from a candle it is an expression of the sun and the candle. It's not a separate being. 
So to us, we're constantly reliant on the godly energy that it creates us. Basically, like AI, we are continuous source code that is a part of God. We never step out of the coding and the sphere of God's existence. If that's the case, then how come I don't feel that? Right? Before I said, before I was questioning God's existence. Now I'm questioning my existence, right? That's how this chapter is flipped around. The beginning, we're wondering how does God own how is God still one even after creation? And we said because nothing changed. Nothing was created outside God. We're source, we're we are an expression of God's code. So if we're an expression of God's code, how come I don't feel that? How come I didn't feel God when I woke up this morning? How come I felt like I woke myself up or my alarm clock woke me up? I didn't feel that God woke me up this morning. And that's going to be the discussion that we're going to continue in the following weeks in the next couple chapters. I have a question. Yes. Or a thought. Um, the first, When you just finished that, that um, conversation that you had with us, the first thing that came to my mind is, how do you explain good and evil and and so my question is, do we eventually get to that? So, that, you know, when we're talking about essentially God is everywhere and God is us and God is right next to us, how do we then um, come to terms with the great evil that's in the world as well as the great good that's in the world? Okay, so it's a very good question. And the goal of, like I said, there. In Tanya, there are different chapters. There's a, actually a letter in Tanya in the letters which discuss this concept. When we understand the fundamentals, we can then revisit questions that are monumental questions like that in a different perspective. Right? So I don't want to answer that now. I want to, and he's not necessarily going to directly answer that within this section, but by better understanding how we exist within God's existence and how God exists within our existence, then we could revisit those terminologies of good and evil and revalue, you know, revisit, you know, the reality with which is our world. And what we'll find, uh, kind of what we discovered over here, that two truths can coexist at the same time, right? Like I said about, you know, it could be dark and yet there are, th you know, you could see things at the same time, right? So, and that's going to be a crucial thing constantly throughout creation is the fact the duality that constantly exists. And that duality creates is understanding that duality helps us better understand the craziness that is the world that we exist in. But first, the key thing, and this is why, and like I, 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 I'm, I hope I'm making the right choice by doing this. This is why I wanted to learn this first before we went to the Tanya. The Tanya deals a lot more with our inner struggle and the good and bad that we have within ourselves and the good and bad that exists in the world. I felt like it's important to understand the fundamentals of how we perceive actual our the actual existence of God with our reality before we explore that. I feel like it'll give us a better, deeper understanding or appreciation for that all. Okay, I, I wasn't expecting an answer today. I was just wondering right. whether um, that was so, part of right. this process. So it is, it is, but after this process, right? So first, we have to understand that duality of our existence. Once we understand that, then we could start being introspective and looking at ourselves and how we operate, and so on and so forth. Make sense? Okay. Yep, I'm good with that. All right. So, um, any other questions?
All right. So next week we'll pick up in chapter four. Um, I'm I'm going to see as we move on through the next chapters. And two things I just want to mention about the class as we go through the next few chapters. I may try to do a little more outside because there's going to be a little more Kabbalistic terminology. And I want to keep um, I want to try to avoid too too complex Kabbalistic terms. So I want to keep the I more to the idea. So I if I skip around in the next few chapters, I'll, that's why because I don't want to get lost in the Kabbalistic terms. Um, the other thing is, I know some people miss some weeks and so on and so forth, so I'm going to try to put um, the classes on Spotify. So if there's also a class you heard you want to share with anyone else, um, you could do that as well. So once I have the classes up, I'll share a link if you would like um, for that as well. All right? Okay. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. We'll see you uh, next week, God willing. Thank you. All right. Take care.